Are you ready to dig into the Word this morning? Take your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 2. It's good to see all of you. I want to welcome you uh, who are guests and joining us today, those who are watching online and those who are watching uh, from our Marshall campus today. We're glad that you're joining with us as we look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 this morning. A number of weeks ago, we hosted a fishing clinic uh, here on uh, the, the lake, back on the land, and uh, had Ott Defoe, who uh, is a, a professional angler. And when I heard that there was a fishing clinic, I thought, great, this is going to be like Fishing 101, which is what I need. Uh, I thought I was going to go and learn how to get, you know, like my hook to connect to my line and not slip off, that kind of thing. That's kind of my level of fishing at this particular point in my life. And it wasn't but a minute uh, that Ott began to speak that I realized this is more like an advanced fishing class. And in fact, he started to talk. It was a whole new language. I mean, I thought I was listening to someone speak Greek. They started talking about all kinds of different rods and reels and lines and lures and all kinds of categories I didn't even know existed. All kinds of different lures I learned different sizes, different shapes, different weights, different colors. You've got jigs, spinner baits, crank baits, swim baits, jerk baits, and buzz baits. I didn't know any, about any of that. But what I learned was that there are different lures for different fish. And crafty fishermen select just the right lure to entice the fish that they're after. And that seems especially relevant as we think about the book of Colossians, because the context of the book of Colossians is that this early church in the city of Colossae has some false teachers that have seeped into the church that are seeking to lure believers away from Christ by offering what Kent Hughes called a scaled-down Christ. They didn't seek to eliminate Christ altogether, but they did seek to diminish their understanding of the person of Christ and of the work of Christ. And the ideology of these false teachers was what I've called Jesus plus. It's the idea that Jesus is, is good and fine, but He's not enough. That if you want real satisfaction in life, you can have Jesus, no problem, but you need something more than Jesus to really be fulfilled. And we see that in our culture as well. Our culture is generally okay with Jesus as long as He's just a moral example or a good teacher. But they won't accept Jesus for who Jesus claims to be. I mean, it's fine if you admire Him so long as you don't worship Him. And our world tries to minimize Him, to keep Him tame and safe and at a distance. And so, in light of that false teaching, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church at Colossae to say, this is who Jesus really is. And so, Colossians chapter 1 exalts Jesus to His rightful, supreme, superior place as Lord of all. Paul says He is Lord over all creation. He is Lord over the church. He is Lord over the, the redemptive work of the cross. He is Lord over the Christian. And then Colossians chapter 2 marks a transition where Paul begins to warn the Colossian believers not to be deceived by any doctrinal deception that would seek to diminish Christ from His rightful place. So in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul warns these believers not to be 
deceived by arguments that sound reasonable. I love the way the King James translates this. King James Version says not to be beguiled by enticing words. What Paul is saying there is I don't want you to be lured away from Christ, to be baited away from Christ. And listen, church, you need to recognize that it is Satan's intention for your life to lure you away from Christ, to bait you with what this world has to offer. And there's a different lure for every person, and Satan knows exactly which lure to use, to bait you away from Christ. And Paul says, I'm writing this letter so that you won't be enticed. Chapter 2, verse 4 really is the purpose statement for the entire book of Colossians. It's, It's written to encourage the believers to remain grounded in their faith, to remain steadfast in the faith, so that they won't be shifted away or moved away or lured away from Christ. Now, when you come to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which is our text this morning, we see what you could consider it to be a summary statement for the entire book of Colossians. It's really Colossians in a nutshell. So, let's, let's look together at what it says. Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 6. It says, so then... Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, right? Now, that is a summary statement from chapter 1, right? Isn't this what Paul has been arguing in Colossians 1, that Jesus is Lord? Paul is saying here this is an indication that you know who Jesus is, that He is the Lord. Then in the next part of the verse, he says, continue to walk in Him. That's an imperative. That really summarizes Colossians 2 through 4. Colossians 2 through 4 is what it looks like to walk in Christ, to live with Christ at the center of your life. And then there are some implications in verse 7 of knowing Christ, being rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. So the first thing I want you to see from the text this morning is simply an indication of the Christian life. We see that in verse 6. Paul says in verse 6, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. How do you know if you are a believer in Christ? How do you know if you're saved? Have you received Christ Jesus as Lord? Listen, if I'm driving down the road and my indicator light goes off, that indicator light tells me something, that there's something happening under the hood of my car. And the indicator life, the indicator light of a believer is that you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. It tells you that Christ is at the center of your life if you've indicated that He is the Lord of your life. Now, every word in that statement is meaningful. Jesus Christ is Lord. There are a couple of confessional statements that are contained in that verse. The first one is simply this, that Jesus is the Christ. I don't know about you, but when I was young, I used to think that Christ was Jesus's last name. Like Andrew Abair, Jesus Christ, right? You have the Christ family. You have Mr. and Mrs. Christ and the little Christ children. That's not what Christ is. Christ is not a name. It's a title. And it means Messiah, or anointed one. It's, it's a reference to someone who would come and deliver and rescue God's people. And I want you to actually understand some of the background for that word because it's a reference that the title Christ or Messiah is actually a reference to a promise that God had made 
thousands of years before Jesus to a man named King David. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, stick your finger in Colossians chapter 2. I want you to turn back to 2 Samuel and chapter 7 because this is a promise that God made to David. It's known as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise that God made to David for a Messiah, for an anointed one, for a, a deliverer. Look at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And I'm going to read uh, just a, a couple of verses here. Uh, verses, beginning verse 8, it says, So now this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all of your enemies before you. And here's a promise. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. Look down to, to verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant. Notice that phrase. I'll raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his, what does it say right there? His kingdom. So there's going to be a special descendant of David, a special son of David who comes, and God is going to establish his kingdom. His, his kingdom means his rulership or his reign. Now, what kind of kingdom will this be? Well, if you look down in verse 16, it says, your house and your kingdom will endure before me for how long? Forever. And your throne will be established how long? Forever. So this is an unusual kingdom. God promises David, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants, and I'm going to establish his throne, and he's going to have an eternal reign. He will reign on the throne forever. Now, that, that promise to David, the Davidic covenant, that becomes the prophetic hope of God's people for centuries following that promise. That promise that God is going to raise up a descendant of David who will reign on the throne and his kingdom will have no end becomes something that God's people look forward to. And so all throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, as you read the prophets, they start talking about this messianic one, this deliverer, this anointed one who's going to come, who's going to destroy God's enemies. God will make his enemies their footstool and will reign on the throne of Israel. And so every time you see a prophet come, the, the, the hope is there. Is this the one that God is raising up to reign forever? Every time you see a king in Israel's life, the question is, is this the one that God is raising up to reign on the throne of ever, uh, for, forever? But here's what happened. Uh, happens. Prophet after prophet, priest after priest, king after king, they live, they serve, they die, they're buried, and they stay buried. And time after time, Israel's hope is deferred. And they have to continually look forward and to the future. Is God going to come through on his promises? Some of you have wondered that very question. Is God going to come through or not? And that was the expectation for centuries. And then you have a period of 400 silent years. No more prophets, no more revelation, just quiet. Until you come to the first verse of the New Testament. First verse of the New Testament, 
Matthew 1.1. It's an unusual way to start the New Testament. Matthew 1 is a genealogy. Now, I know genealogies are our favorite parts of the Bible, right? A family tree. But I want you to notice why Matthew begins his gospel this particular way. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David. You see, what Matthew is doing right here is he's opening up the very first book of the New Testament, the first chapter of the first book, and the first verse of the first chapter of the first book to say all of that waiting All of that expectation, all of that looking forward and asking the question, is God going to fulfill his promise? It is fulfilled in the person of his son, Jesus. It is Jesus who is the Messiah. It is Jesus who is the son of David. It is Jesus who is the descendant of David that God would raise up to reign on the throne and God would establish his forever reign his kingdom that has no end. How can Jesus have a kingdom without end? Well, here's the deal. Unlike the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament who lived and served and then died and then were buried and stayed buried, Jesus came as the prophet, priest, and king who lived and served and died and was buried but didn't stay buried. Three days later, he came out through the other side of death. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, which is where he is ruling and reigning forevermore. And God has fulfilled, God has fulfilled that covenant promise to David through the person of his son, Jesus. And that is what we mean when we say that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the anointed one that God brought to bring fulfillment to all of his promises, all that he claimed to be. So the first indication of the Christian life is can you acknowledge that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is God's Messiah, that he is the deliverer, the prophetic fulfillment to the promise to David. But then there's a second confessional statement that's contained in this verse, and that is not only that Jesus is the Christ, but also that Jesus is the Lord. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. This is, of course, what Paul has been arguing for in chapter 1 of Colossians, right? He's been arguing that Jesus is Lord of all, that He is the supreme sovereign, that He is the superior Savior, that He is the risen, ruling Lord of all things in heaven on and in earth. He says He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of the cross. He's the Lord of the Christian. That's what He's saying in chapter 1. But now in chapter 2 and verse 6, He's saying, if you know Jesus as who He really is, then you know that Jesus is Lord of your life. He's not just the cosmic ruler. He's the ruler of you. He's not just sitting on a throne in the heavens. He's sitting on the throne of your heart. And you've received Christ Jesus not merely as a good example or a moral teacher. You've received Him for who He really is, Lord. And folks, I would contend that it's this statement, Jesus is Lord, that separates believers from unbelievers, sheep from goats, Those who really know Jesus 
and follow him from those who are fakers. It is the statement that Jesus is the Lord that indicates whether or not I actually know him as Savior. You see, some people will say, I know Jesus as Savior, he's just not my Lord. And I would say that's impossible. He cannot be Savior without also being Lord. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And the truth is, in our culture, many people love the thought of Jesus as Savior, but they loathe the thought of Jesus as Lord. They love the idea that I can get a get-out-of-hell-free card and then go on and live my life however I want to live. People in our culture have no objection to that kind of Jesus. The objection is to, to the idea that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the ruler, that Jesus has authority over my life. But that is really what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means you come to a recognition that I am no longer in charge of my own life, that I have been on the throne of my own life, and I'm not done a good job ruling my life, and so I'm getting off the throne and I'm recognizing that Jesus is the only rightful occupant of the throne of my life. Amen? That He is King. By the way, the kingdom of God, the kingship of God, the rulership of God, that is the primary theme of Jesus' preaching. It's the primary theme of the apostles' preaching. If you look at the book of Acts, after Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead. He spent 40 days with his disciples, and and the first paragraph of the book of Acts tells us that he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then the last paragraph of Acts, Paul is under house arrest, and he's speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. It bookends Acts. Right in the middle of Acts, Acts chapter 17, You remember a group of believers who are gathering in Jason's home, and they get arrested, and the charge that is brought against them is that they are are preaching that there is another king, namely Jesus. The content of the message of the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord. And if you want to really know Christ, you must know Him for who He claims to be which is not just Savior, but also Lord. Consider what Billy Graham said. Billy Graham said, no one can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He he may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master Consider what Charles Spurgeon said as he looked at the book of Acts. He said the apostles preached the lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the book of Acts. The title Lord is mentioned 92 times, Lord Jesus 13 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ six times in the book. The gospel says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When believers in the early church came to faith in Christ, and they would take that first step of obedience, which is baptism. In the early church, when when they would be baptized, they would be asked to make a confessional statement, and this is the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to ask you, is Jesus the Lord of your life? If you're here today and maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe this is your first time even to be in a Christian church, you might be wondering, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord, and what kind of Lord would He be? I mean, you're talking about someone ruling 
over me. We don't want to be ruled over by anything. But let me just tell you about the nature of our Lord. The nature of the Lordship of Christ. Christ is a Lord, a ruler, unlike any other. Uh, there's a movie that depicts the Battle of Thermopylae, which I know you're all familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae. It's where King Leonidas with 300 Spartans stood against King Xerxes and a multitude of Persians. And there's an interaction between Xerxes and Leonidas where Xerxes says, I would gladly sacrifice a thousand of my men to win. And Leonidas responds and says, yes, and I would gladly die for any one of mine. You see, the heart of Jesus as a ruler is not to oppress you. It is to minister to you, to love you, to be kind and compassionate to you, to be merciful to you. The kind of Lord that we have is a gracious and compassionate King. You can understand the nature of the Lordship of Christ by looking no further than the cross of Jesus where the God of heaven steps off the throne and onto a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. He so loved you, this Lord, that He'd be willing to die for you in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. And He was buried and rose from the dead. And now He adopts us into His family so that you can become a son or a daughter of the King. And we get to call this Lord in the Scriptures we call him friend. We call him brother. This is the kind of Lord that Jesus is. He is not only the cosmic reigning king of the universe, he is also a friend. Isn't that good news? That's what we mean when we say that Jesus is Lord. It's not just that he reigns, but that there's relationship. And so that's the indication of the Christian life, that we receive Christ Jesus as Lord. But here's the second thing, and that is the imperative of the Christian life. In verse 6, Paul shifts from this indicative statement that we have received Christ Jesus as Lord to a command, an imperative statement. He says, if it's true that you've received Christ as Lord, then continue to walk in Him. That's a, an imperative statement. It's a command. It's an instruction. If it's true that you are in Christ, that you've received Christ for who He really is, Lord, then Continue to walk in Him. That word walk is a Hebrew way of describing your whole way of life. Paul is saying, if it's true that Jesus is Lord over your life, then allow your whole way of life to reflect that truth. Continue to, to walk in Him. Continue to allow the, the whole way of your life to reflect the Lordship of Jesus. That's what Colossians 2, 3, and 4 are all about. In Colossians 2 through 4, Paul, which I'm going to talk about all those verses today. I'm kidding. <laughs> In Colossians 2 through 4, Paul is describing what it looks like to live out the lordship of Christ in our lives. So chapter 3, for instance, Paul begins describing your inner life and, and what the truth that Jesus is Lord what it, what it does to you from the inside out, that it changes your heart. It changes who you are in your inner person. 
so that you experience life transformation. And then he describes your life together with other believers. What does it look like for Jesus to be Lord and for us to interact with other believers in the context of the church? Towards the end of chapter 3, Paul talks about what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord of my home and in my family. What does it look like for Jesus to be Lord of my marriage and my parenting? In chapter 4, Paul talks about what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord of our work life, what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord over our witnessing life. Paul is simply saying, if it's true, this cosmic reality that Jesus is Lord over all, then you ought to live in your inner life and your life together and your home and family life and your work life. All of that should reflect the fact that Jesus is Lord. Paul is simply saying, if Jesus is Lord, live like it. Let your walk reflect your talk. Amen? Don't just say that Jesus is Lord. If you've received Him as Lord, then continue to walk in Him. And notice the word that he uses here, continue. Paul says this should be a continual thing. He uses a present active imperative. That describes ongoing action. He's saying continue to live with Christ as Lord. Continue to live with Christ at the center. This is a call for endurance in the Christian life. It's a call not to turn from Jesus, not to deconstruct or deconvert, not to give up or be lured away, but rather a call to continue to run the race with Jesus all the way through the finish line. The, the Colossian church is under bombardment from this heresy that seeks to diminish Christ and lure them away from Christ. And Paul simply says, if Christ is truly Lord of your life, then continue with Christ. Don't turn from Him. Don't be baited away or lured away by any other lesser substitute. Continue to walk with Christ. Listen, folks, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It is a long-distance endurance race where we are called to the upward call in Christ Jesus. We are called to run all the way through to the finish line with Jesus, not to be distracted or diverted by lures and baits that Satan puts in front of us to draw us away from Christ, but to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and run with endurance the race that is set before us, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. I've got a friend who uh, runs a lot. He runs marathons, but he also runs ultra marathons, and that's not a good idea. There's just no joy in that. 26.2 miles is not enough. And so what he'll do is he'll run 50 milers. And he does the rim-to-rim race in the Grand Canyon. And he is working right now on a 100-mile endurance race. And the thing about my friend is that he, he uh, catalogs this on Instagram. And so he'll take these videos of himself as he's running. In mile one, he always looks great. You know, he's got his running clothes, and he, he looks fit and energetic and vibrant. And he'll do a little Instagram story and talk about how great the day is for a run and blah, 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 blah. And then you get to, you know, fifth, mile 15, and he's kind of like sweating. He, you can tell he's feeling it. Mile 26, marathon distance. He's done, you know, and he's starting to look a little bit weary. M- mile 48, he gets on the camera, and he looks like the walking dead. I mean, he's just like no color in his face, and he's ashen, you know, and because every bone in his body is hurting at this particular point. The reality is, in the Christian life, 
There will be times when you want to throw in the towel, where, where every bone in your body is hurting, and when, when life as a Christian gets painful, it's easy to want something else. But Paul says, continue with Christ. Continue to walk in Him. Don't be lured away. Don't, don't, don't be lured away by a Jesus plus mentality thinking that you need something other than Christ or something more than Christ for fullness in your life. Continue with Christ. That's the imperative. Keep running. Amen? If you're here today and you are on the verge of quitting, listen, that's exactly what Satan wants for you. Satan wants for you to throw in the towel and say it's too difficult, it's too hard, but look at the finish line. Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus and continue to walk in Him. Now, the final thing I want you to see from the text are the implications of the Christian life. The implications of the Christian life. It's true, if it's true that we've received Christ Jesus as the Lord and we're called to continue to walk in Him, now notice verse 7. What is also true of our life? What are the implications of Christian life? Well, Paul uses four metaphors to describe the implications of life with Christ. Look at verse 7. He says, continue to walk in Him, being rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. So, four metaphors. The first is an agricultural metaphor. He says, when you know Jesus as Lord, you are rooted in Him. You put roots that grow deep into Christ. If you, uh, if you drive through West Texas, where Amy and I lived for many years, you'll see an unusual sight. You'll see something that you might believe only happens in cartoons, but it, it actually happens in real life. You will see tumbleweeds blowing across the desert. I, I remember the first time I went to Lubbock, Texas, uh, Amy and I were living in Dallas. I'd grown up in Houston. Amy grew up in the Dallas area. We drove to Lubbock. We're driving out by Texas Tech. This was 2000-something. And we noticed something. I looked as I was driving. I saw something in my side mirror rolling down the street. I looked, and it was like a seven- or eight-foot-wide tumbleweed. I was so fascinated. I thought that was a fake thing like on Looney Tunes. And so I pulled out my phone. I, you know, I wanted to record this tumbleweed I thought it was the coolest thing. And then we moved to Hobbs, New Mexico, and Amarillo, Texas, and we lived with them all around. And tumbleweed is an interesting thing. It's a plant. It's a, really a weed that came from Russia, but it grows out in that part of the world. But here's the thing. It lacks a strong root system. And so when the wind blows at 60 or 70 miles an hour, which it often does in that part of the world, those plants are uprooted and they begin to roll for miles because they lack a strong rootedness. Paul is saying, when you know Christ, you get rooted so that when the storms of life hit you, you remain steadfast in Christ. Your roots go down and you draw nourishment up from Christ. Roots deep into Christ, nourishment up from Christ for your life. You are rooted. But then he uses a second metaphor. This is not an agricultural metaphor, it's an architectural metaphor. He says, not only are you rooted, but you are also being built up in Christ. That's an architectural metaphor. He's saying, when you come to know Christ, 
Christ becomes the foundation of the house of your life, and God begins to construct the house of your life on Christ. He begins to build you up in Christ. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount about two house builders. The very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says one house builder was a foolish house builder because he built his house on sand. And when the wind and the waves came, when the storms of life hit, that house that house blew away because it was built on sand. But then there was a wise man who built his house on the what? On the rock. And when the winds blew and the, the waves came and the storms of life hit, that house remained. Why? Because it was built on the rock. And here Paul is saying, when you know Jesus, your, your house is built on something that doesn't shift beneath your feet. So much of what we build our lives on as, as Americans, it is shifting sand. It is here today and gone tomorrow. If you build your, your house on financial wealth, that can disappear like that. If the house of your built, uh, 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 the, the, the foundation of your house is, is built on your, your health, that can be gone like that. If the, the house of your life is built on the foundation of, of having a, a picture-perfect Norman Rockwell, a Norman Rockwell family, that can be taken from you like that. But listen, when you know Jesus Christ, you build the foundation of your house on something that does not shift under your feet. Paul says, God will build you up. He will construct a, a solid foundation and sturdy beams where we're being, we're being built up in Christ. The interesting thing about this is that the building project in your life is always ongoing. In fact, it's really interesting. If you look at the word rooted and the word built up, in the Greek New Testament, they are in different tenses. The, the word rooted is the perfect tense. That means it's, it's, it's done and you have, you have uh, ongoing effects, but it's a completed action. In other words, when you come to know Christ, you, you are rooted in Him. But then the word built up is, it's in the present tense. It indicates an ongoing, an ongoing action. What it means is that God is continually working on the house that is your life. Folks, the Christian life, in other words, is not a finished product. It's a work in progress. While you are rooted in Christ, that's a once and for all thing that happens when Jesus becomes Lord of your life, the building project of your life is an ongoing, continual thing that happens until Jesus comes back or you go to see Jesus. What he's describing here is the process of sanctification, that when you come to know Jesus as Lord, God begins to work in your life to construct a, a sturdy house and that that's an ongoing project. Those of you who are homeowners, you know that you're co you constantly have to work on your house, don't you? There's no such thing as just like building your house and leaving it there because it's going to deteriorate. So you're constantly tinkering. You're constantly shaping and molding and forming. And that's exactly what God does with us when we come to know Jesus as Savior. He begins to shape and form and mold and construct and build and repair and work on us as a continuing work of progress to make us more like Christ than when we first began. So we are built up in Christ. Then there's a third metaphor. It's a legal metaphor. He uses the word established. He says you are rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. That, that, that is a legal metaphor. It means to be confirmed or settled like a legal document. 
When Amy and I sold our home in Amarillo, we had to sign closing documents, and, and someone came over to the church and let us sign those remotely. She was a notary public, and she had to sit down with us, watch us sign those papers, and she had to notarize it. She had to confirm it. And there's a finality to it. Now, that's the word Paul uses here. He says, when you come to know Jesus, you are rooted, you are being built up, but you are also confirmed. You are settled. You are established. There's a finality to this. There's a sense that our salvation is settled and confirmed. It is unwavering. It means there's no turning back or turning away. It means that in Christ, you are both saved and secure. Amen? You're established. Now, the interesting thing about these first three metaphors is that they are in the passive voice. That means these are things where you are acted upon. This is, uh, you don't root yourself, you don't build yourself, you don't establish yourself. In other words, these first three metaphors are describing not what you do, but what God does. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say go root yourself, go build yourself, go establish yourself. He's saying rather, when you know Jesus, there are some things God does for you. He is the one who roots you. He is the one who builds you up. He is the one who establishes you. This is describing God's initiative and His work in the process of salvation, His work in believers. And what an encouragement that that would be to a church in danger of heresy. Paul is saying, don't be fearful. Yes, there are these threatening false teachings, but realize that if you know Christ as Lord that the Lord Himself will put the roots of your faith deep so that no one can rip you up. That the Lord Himself will build your faith strong so that nothing can blow the house of your faith down. That the Lord Himself will confirm and establish and settle your salvation so that no one can steal it away from you. This speaks of God's initiative in bringing us into union with Himself that He will both save and settle and make us secure and sustain us in faith. And all of this is something you don't have to do from your own resources. It's something that God will do for you if you're in Christ. Amen? But then now the fourth and final metaphor. Paul switches uh, uh, voices. It's no longer now passive. This fourth metaphor, Paul uses the active voice. That means this last one is something that you are called to do. You don't root yourself, build yourself, establish yourself. That's what God does. But there is something for you to do in response to what God has done. It's this fourth metaphor. He uses the phrase, overflowing with gratitude. He's used an agricultural metaphor, an architectural metaphor, a legal metaphor. Now he's going to use a natural or fertile or fruitful metaphor. He's saying in the same way that a spring gushes forth, in the same way that a a spring overflows its banks at times. Some of you have a translation that translates this abounds in the same way that Wine can abound from grapes. I know none of you Baptists know anything about that. When we recognize what God has done in our lives, our only appropriate response is to overflow with gratitude from a grateful heart for a a God of grace. 
It is to overflow with thanks, to, to pour out praise. Paul is saying the only rightful response to really knowing what God has done for you as Lord in rooting you and building you up and confirming your faith is to respond to the grace of God with a grateful heart. Folks, let me tell you that the degree to which you are grateful is directly proportional to how well you understand what God has done for you. Here's another way of putting that. The grumpy, ungrateful heart is a heart that is unfamiliar with the grace of God. Amen? That was everybody but the grumpy people. (laughs) A grumpy, ungrateful heart is a heart that is unfamiliar with the grace of God. When you really understand God's grace and what He's done for you, you can't help but to be grateful. And if you would say, today I'm not grateful, I'm ungrateful, and I'm grumpy, then maybe you need to meditate on what God's done for you. Maybe you really need to think about and appreciate what you have in Christ. I'm, I'm finished. But let me say one more thing. By the way, that's how you know that Paul was a Baptist preacher. You know, in the book of Philippians, he says, finally, my brothers, and he has like three more chapters. So let me just say, finally, my brothers, what does, ha- what does having a grateful heart, what does that have to do with avoiding doctrinal deception, right? Because don't forget the purpose that Paul writes this letter is so that you wouldn't be enticed, lured away. Well, think about what Curtis Vaughn says. He says, those who lack a deep sense of gratitude are especially vulnerable to doubt and spiritual delusion. I want you to think about what he's saying there. If you lack gratitude, you are vulnerable to doubt and delusion. H.C.G. Mole says, there is a great and profoundly reasonable power in holy thanksgiving to bring home to the soul the reality of the treasure for which the thanks are given. The heart which looks up and blesses God will develop a holy and healthy instinct of rejection toward all substitutes for Him. Let me just unpack that for a moment. What, Paul, what, what, what Mole is saying there and what Paul, I think, is arguing is that when you really are appreciative for what you have in Christ, you will not be lured away by any lesser substitute. Some of you can resonate with me when I say that uh, my experience as a child of Christmas was pretty much the same every year. It was all of this excitement that was building up. My, my favorite day of the year is Christmas Eve, right? Isn't that the best day? Because all the anticipation, all the excitement, you're looking forward to the, to the next morning. You wake up, you open the present, you're excited about whatever it is that you got. Now, I'm one of seven kids, which means we didn't get a lot of gifts, but each of us at least got one gift, you know? And so you open that gift up, and you're like so excited about the socks. <laughs> and you, boy, you put those socks on, and you're excited, and it, you're grateful, and it's wonderful. And then you have big Christmas lunch with everybody, and, and then you know what happens. It's probably happened in you, because I know it happens in all of us. After lunch, 
you go outside, and that's when the wonder of Christmas dies. Because you see all the cool stuff your friends got. And all of a sudden, you are so excited and so grateful for your socks, but then you see your kid's gizmo or gasmo down the street, his bicycle or their cool video game or whatever, and it's like all of a sudden, you're just disappointed in the socks. You're drawn away by whatever the thing is that they're enjoying, and all of a sudden, all of that Christmas joy turns into Christmas jealousy. Oh, man, I'm not, I want what they have. You see, when you're truly grateful for what you have, you won't be drawn away by other substitutes. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, when you really understand what you have when you have Christ, then you won't be enticed or lured away by any other lesser substitute. And so cultivate gratitude. Cultivate a thankful heart. Cultivate a heart that appreciates the grace of God, and it will protect you from being lured away to any other lesser substitute. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us this morning. If you're here today and you know Christ, then your response to God's Word today could simply be to say, thank you, Jesus. Help me understand what I have in you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and yet you'd like to know Jesus in that way as Lord, then don't leave today without nailing that decision down. Let me just tell you how you can do it. After the song that we sing here in just a moment, there are decision prayer partners in the lobby. They're wearing badges so you can identify them, and they are eager and ready to talk with you about how to have a relationship with this king who also wants to be known as friend. And so after this last song, you can just walk out there and just say, I'd like to know more about Jesus, and they will talk with you about that. And we would love to celebrate with you, just like we celebrated three today who followed Jesus. We'd love to celebrate you making Jesus the Lord of your life. Let's bow together. Father, we are so thankful for your work for us and your son, Jesus. Cultivate in us an ever-increasing gratitude so that we'll have an ever-increasing loyalty to your son. We pray in his name.